That better? There we go. Take a seat. Let's pray. We're going to need to pray the next six weeks. As you can see what we're talking about. So, bow your heads, please. Heavenly Father, as we come before you and as we open our Bibles this morning, I want to first of all acknowledge that you are sovereign over all things. It is you who brings all things after the counsel of your will to their destined end. It is you who places rulers in positions of authority and it is you who takes them down. And as we come to you this morning, we ask for your guidance, for your presence. We need your spirit to do a work in our hearts that we would bend the knee to your priorities. Please speak through me this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. How's it look up there? That's actually not that bad. It's always hard creating a PowerPoint so you can see the words and so on. We're starting a new series. We'll get back to our different series in, uh, after November 3rd. But we're starting a new series um, called Kingdom Voting. I want to begin with this story. In March of 2017, I had my eyes opened. I've never been into politics. But like everyone else, I was amazed at the the seismic bomb that was dropped on American politics in November of 2016 when Donald J. Trump was elected president of the United States. I did not think that man had a chance, did you? All the political experts predicted he had no chance. They were wrong. So in March of 2017, when I turned on my computer at the office, my office over here, and got on the internet, and the homepage popped up with news provided by Yahoo, because it's a basic Yahoo homepage. Once again, I saw articles describing the poor job our new president was doing. And I distinctly remember thinking, man, this guy's not doing well. Then it hit me, and my eyes were opened. I was probably being lied to by the media. So I watched a press conference of the president and then read what appeared on my Yahoo news page. And sure enough, what the president had said and what was being reported was a lie. And what President Trump had said about fake news was true. And for the next three years, I watched as the president said and tweeted messages that made me cringe. While at the same time, I quietly marveled at his tenacity as he continued to receive such negative and biased news coverage from the liberal media of CNN, ABC, CBS, MSNBC, NBC, and on 
and on and on. I watched as the Democratic Party attempted to impeach him on what we now know was false information that they already knew was false information. I heard politicians spout lies and twist truths that quite quite frankly left me disgusted with the political arena. So over a year ago, I began praying about doing a sermon series on what the Bible says about the issues we face in the upcoming election. Now, I knew it would be considered controversial by some, but I was encouraged when I began reading of other pastors who were already preaching on this topic. I thought to myself, you know, I might be onto something here. So I began discussing this idea with some of you, began researching ideas for this sermon series just under a year ago. I am not a political person. I do not know enough about what the Bible says about a lot of these issues. Some of the topics I was considering preaching on months ago, they fell by the wayside as new topics began to jump to the forefront as the year 2020 unfolded. And it's been a strange year. Now first, it's interesting because I'm choosing my words wisely here. I, I said, I, want, I was going to say, I want to be up front with you. And I thought, well, that doesn't communicate what I want to say. I will be up front with you, is what I've written here. The purpose of this sermon series is to educate the congregation of Bible Chapel on what the Bible says, not what I think the Bible says about some of the issues we are facing as a nation in this upcoming election. And it seemed to me that since we live in a democracy where we are entrusted with a significant portion of the ruling power of government by way of voting, then all the citizens who are old enough to vote have a responsibility. They have a responsibility before God to know what God expects of government and what kind of moral and legal standards he wants governments to follow. And they can learn this only if churches teach about government in politics from the Bible. I would probably say that giving or finances in politics are two things that most pastors will not talk about. I'm not like them. Sadly, too many churches refuse to do so, i.e. in politics, teach on these issues because of the controversy surrounding these issues. Second, I want you to understand this, this sermon series will be controversial. When you discuss abortion and homosexuality and the definition of marriage, there's bound to be some eyebrows raised because of what the Bible says about these topics and the truth flagrantly confronts the lies of the world. I will preach the truth of God's word to counter the lies of the world no matter how controversial the subject matter is. Third, some of you may be thinking, well, what about the separation of church and state? Isn't the church supposed to render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto God what is God's? And the answer is yes. However, we have already seen the government overstep its boundaries in blatantly discriminating against churches in regards to COVID-19. 
And when politics infringes upon the arena of religion with its laws based on blatantly distorted truth and agendas, the church is forced to respond to these lies with the truth of God's word. Fourth, I struggled to come up with a title for this sermon series. In my preparation, I discovered a new series that Dr. Tony Evans is currently preaching on, entitled Kingdom Voting. He's not the only one that's talking about this. There's other uh, websites and, and pastors that have preached on this. But those two words so succinctly encapsulate what I'm attempting to communicate in this series, namely this, that Christian voting is to be decided by the principles clearly laid out in the Bible that result in the advancement of God's kingdom for the sake of his glory. Therefore, I've entitled this sermon series, Kingdom Voting. It's so apropos. Now, finally, I have never attempted to do a sermon series like this before. It has required me to do much more research than the typical sermon series. And I am grateful. Just, I think it was on Monday, I found a book titled Politics According to the Bible by none other than Wayne Grudem. Dr. Grudem, I sat under his teaching, took a number of his classes. I know who he is. I know of his character. He's a Reformed theologian. He has founded the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. I've researched a lot of other books. I want to get both sides. Why are there evangelicals that are more left-leaning or more liberal? I've discovered one book. I didn't know any of the authors except one of them. It was like 20 different speakers, I think it was. I looked at it and saw some of the arguments, and, and people that live in these ivory tower intellectual worlds can come up with great arguments. And I read some reviews, and gratefully I found a, a pastor who had read the book. And I, from reading, I could tell his pastor was a conservative, knew what he was talking about, and he exposed the book for what it is. In other words, there's opinions, but the opinions have to be based on the Bible. I know Dr. Grudem, and so I'm comfortable with his interpretation. If you read the book, you would be too, I believe. It's t- this is what the Bible says. Dr. Grudem wrote, in my opinion, the best systematic theology book on Reformed theology, just because it's readable. <laughs> it's in my office. Some of you may have it, and some of you may even know who he is. So he is a reliable source. I'm sure I won't agree with everything and and so on and so forth. That would be foolish. But I will rely heavily on this book for the information contained in this sermon series. Now, this is going to be a little bit of a longer sermon, so you can strap yourselves in and get your Bibles out. We're going to talk about biblical government. We're going to look at what the Old Testament says about government. Biblical government, first of all, restrains evil. And right at the get-go, you are going to see that in our culture today, in some cities particularly, this is not happening. Genesis 9, 5 through 6 says this. You can just listen. I'm not going to put the verses up. There are too many. Genesis 9, 5 through 6. This is a story of right after the flood, God is reestablishing Society. 
through Noah. And he says this, And for your lifeblood I will require reckoning from every beast. I will require it and for man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Now in speaking these words to Noah, in Genesis 9, 5 through 6, God establishes the obligation to carry out the punishment of the taking of a human life in retribution for the crime of murder. Here's the point. Once this principle is established, then the application of lesser penalties for lesser crimes is now justified. And since if a government has a right to carry out the most severe kind of punishment in the taking of a human life, then certainly has the right to carry out lesser punishments for lesser crimes as well. Now, this command given to Noah is significant because this event took place long before the establishment of the people of Israel as descendants of Abraham. This is Genesis 9. Genesis 12 was when the call of Abraham and the establishment of Israel. Also, it was way before the establishment of that nation of Israel as a distinct nation during the time of Moses. The commands to Noah in Genesis 9, 5 through 6, were given at the beginning of the reestablishment of human society after God destroyed all but Noah's family in the waters of the flood. That means that this principle in Genesis 9, 5 through 6, it's not limited to the Old Testament only. It is a universal principle. You follow me so far? And it's for the purpose of restraining evil. Generally speaking, the next point is this. The Old Testament says that biblical government rules with justice and righteousness. Deuteronomy 16, 19 through 20. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. In Psalm 82, 2 through 4, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Now these verses emphasize a couple of points. That rulers must judge with fairness and righteousness. Don't show partiality. But judge only according to what? The law and the facts of the case. Rulers also must pay special attention to defending those who have little power to defend themselves, i.e. the weak and the fatherless. That's the reason why we have a military, not just to protect our interests, but you are defending those who can't defend themselves. Number three, rulers are to use their power to stop the wicked from harming others, which we are not seeing right now in many cities in the United States. And rulers are to bring about good when governing justly. In other words, God's blessings flow. In other words, the people will live and inherit the land. Are you following me so far? Finally, the Old Testament says this, that biblical government opposes anarchy. When there is no government or the government is so weak, i.e. it's been crippled by politicians or a lack of resources, that it cannot or will not enforce its laws, 
there are terribly destructive results. Read the book of Judges, and you will see what anarchy looks like. The stories in Judges 18 through 25 include some of the most horrible sins recorded anywhere in the Bible. And why does this happen? Genesis, or Judges 21, 16. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Have we not seen that played out today? These passages that I just shared with you, they remind us of the horrible results of anarchy. And there are more verses, by the way. A situation where there is no effective government at all. God has designed government to restrain evil and bring about good through the application of righteousness and justice. Now that is the Old Testament. What does the New Testament say about biblical government? Well, it supplements, it reinforces what the Old Testament says. Starting with Genesis 9, actually, about the authority to punish evil. Just listen to Romans 13, 1 through 17. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, i.e. their pastors, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, tax to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Same thing in 1 Peter 2, 13-14. Be subject, to, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or the governor as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Now, I'm going to fly through this because we have a lot more to cover, but... These passages tell several things about government. God has appointed the authorities who have governmental power. This idea is supported by Jesus' statement to Pilate when he says this in John 19, 11. You remember, he's speaking to Pilate, who's about to have him killed. You would have no authority over me at all unless what? It had been given you from above. Number two, rulers are to be a terror to bad conduct. That means what? Well, they restrain evil by the threat of punishment. Again, does that sound like it's consistent with what was taught in Genesis 9, 5 through 6? Blood for blood. Number three, they give approval or praise to those who do what is good. They're to do that. Number four, the ruler is God's servant for your good. These verses tell us that the government has a role in promoting the common good of a society. The common good of a society. 
it should not only punish wrongdoing, but also encourage and reward good conduct. Conduct that contributes to the good of society. Number five, and we're not seeing that, by the way, happen in some places. Number five, government officials serve God. Rulers are God's servant for your good. He is a servant of God. We need to see their government rulers as servants of God. The institution of civil government in itself is something very good. A benefit that flows to us from God's infinite wisdom and love. John, you were talking to me, John Nistern, right? He's baffled in Romania, right? It's, it's corrupt government run by the mafia. Russia is that way. I experienced it firsthand when I went over there. You think it's bad living here? Go to Romania. Go to Russia. Those governments do not exist for the good of the people. So when people trash America and Americans trash America, they have no idea what they're talking about. They don't know what it means to be in a, a corrupt government, as corrupt as our government can be. Number six, governments execute, or government authorities execute God's wrath and wrongdoers and thereby carry a task retribution. So in short, the purposes of government according to the Bible are this, to exercise justice and righteousness by restraining evil and by bringing order to society and which in turn brings good to society. In other words, if there's not law and order, is there good? No. And we are seeing that. I was going to do a, a series or sermon on law and order and why we need it. I realized I'm already doing that now. Now, there are other verses to keep in mind when developing a biblical worldview of government. Okay, number one, and that is this, God's sovereignty over the selection of and establishment of governmental rulers. Daniel 2.21, he changes times and seasons, he removes kings and sets up kings. It's his show. You understand that? I mean, God also predicted that through Isaiah, the establishment of Cyrus, king of Persia, about 150 years before his life. This is what it says. Who says of Cyrus in Isaiah 44, 28, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose. President Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, appointed by God for his purposes. Donald Trump, appointed by God for his purposes. Number two, the use of government power for self-enrichment of the leaders in his family or, or friends is prohibited. It is repeatedly condemned in the Old Testament. Here is one verse. Again, I read it to you before. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality. You shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise, perverts the cause of the righteous. The government exists for the good of the people, not for the good of the king or the emperor or the president and for his enrichment. Number three, civilians are to be subject to the government and obey 
its laws. Peter tells us very clearly, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. But I want you to consider what the Old Testament says about being subject to the government. Because it takes it to a whole nother level. Think about this when you want to criticize whatever government leader you want to criticize. Just think about this. Proverbs 24, 21. My son, fear the Lord and the king, and do not join with those who do otherwise. And here we go. Think about this. Ecclesiastes 10, 20. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king. How many of you have broken that command? Nor in your bedroom, curse the rich. Did you know that? So it's disturbing to me when I, I hear of or see of believers on Facebook or other pages ripping the government leaders, whatever side of the aisle you're on. I mean, you don't get it. You don't do that. Shame on you. Why, again, be subject to the governing authorities? Because God has established the government to restrain evil and do good for the nation. It's for your good, for your benefit. Number four, governments should protect human freedom. This is so important. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, Isaiah 61.1. Why? Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted and do what? To bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim freedom or liberty to the captives. Freedom to prisoners. There are other verses, many other verses that speak about this, but they reveal to us that the Bible consistently places a high value on individual human freedom and responsibility to choose one actions. Slavery and oppression, for example, they're always viewed negatively in the scriptures, while freedom is viewed positively. Individual freedom was also prized, for though people in Israel would sometimes sell themselves into slavery as a solution to severe poverty, what was God's provision for them? The Jubilee year would come once every 50 years to set free those who had been enslaved. It's in Leviticus 25.10. In founding the United States, the authors of the Declaration of Independence understood the importance of liberty. For they affirmed at the outset not only what? All men are created equal, but also that they are endowed by their creator with certain unable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The unalienable right to liberty was listed right next to the unalienable right to to life. Now the next sentence declared that it was the purpose of government to protect these rights such as life and liberty when it says this, that to secure these rights governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Protecting human liberty was seen as one of the most important and most basic of all the functions of government. That is not done in Romania or in Russia. Number five, there is 
one realm of activity under the authority of government and another realm of activity under the authority of God. Render unto Caesar's what is Caesar's. Render unto God what is God's. The civil government should not govern the things that are God's. This may hurt a little bit for some of you, but the government cannot save people. The church has fallen into that. Personal salvation is only a work of God, not government. We must constantly remember that winning elections, it's not enough to change nations. And the essential role of judges, number seven, is to judge according to a law external to themselves. And I will spend the rest of my time on this particular topic. Ezekiel 44, 24 says this, In a dispute they shall take their stand to judge. They shall judge it according to my ordinances. In the Bible, judges were expected to judge according to a set of laws external to themselves. The ordinances that God had given provided the standard by which judges were to decide a dispute. It wasn't their personal opinion. They were to make up, they were not to make up their own laws or regulations, but were to evaluate the accused person's conduct in light of the established laws of God that were fixed and known and were external to the judges themselves. Now, in essence, that's the Bible part of this. I'm going to go into now the Supreme Court. Take it and make this stuff, all these verses, relevant, especially with what's happened this week with the nomination of a new Supreme Court justice. When the United States was founded, the highest authority in the nation would not be any human person at all. What is it? It's a document called the Constitution. This Constitution could only be changed with great difficulty, and all officials and all laws were subject to it. So you think of the Constitution up here, and then think of the people and the laws underneath. You with me so far? However, in establishing a rule of law, system of government in the United States, another problem faced our founding fathers. How could they guarantee that some powerful group would not take over the government, violate the Constitution at will, and refuse to be subject to its requirements? Their solution was a separation of powers. Power would be divided among various groups to ensure a set of checks and balances. So we have the executive branch consisting of who? The president. A legislative branch consists of what? Congress. A judicial branch consisting of what? The courts. Now, with respect to the separation of powers between the legislatures and the courts, the United States was set up to have a system in which one group would make the laws, and that is namely who? It's the Congress and the state and local legislatures. And another group would interpret and apply the laws, called what? The courts. It would also decide if the laws were consistent with the Constitution. Now, in this way, the courts would judge the individual laws that were made. 
So in this system, the judges interpret and apply the Constitution and the laws, but they do not make laws. And they certainly do not change the Constitution. In fact, as the U.S. Constitution was originally set up, judges had absolutely no rule, no role in making any new laws, nor did they have any role whatsoever in difficult process of amending the Constitution. In other words, the Supreme Court adjudicates, they don't legislate. They rule on laws, but they don't create new laws. I've heard that phrase, they adjudicate, not legislate, over and over again this week in the news. You with me so far? But what has actually happened in the United States? The courts would decide cases according to the laws that have been passed and according to the Constitution. There were not only federal courts dealing with cases of laws for the whole United States, but also state and local courts dealing with their own laws. Difficult cases could be appealed to a higher court and eventually to the Supreme Court. However, there was a weakness in the system that the justices of the Supreme, on the Supreme Court discovered over time. If a case came to the Supreme Court and the Constitution did not say anything or did not say something that the Supreme Court justices wanted it to say or thought it should say, they could claim to discover new principles in the Constitution. And guess what? No one would have the power to overrule them. One example of this happened on January 22, 1973. The Supreme Court announced its decision regarding abortion in the case of Roe versus Wade. This decision overturned the laws that restricted or prohibited abortion in all 50 states. The decision gave women an unrestricted right to abortion up to the point of viability, which is the point at which the preborn child could live outside the womb at about 28 weeks but allowed for abortion to protect a woman's health even after that point. Now, since health was then defined broadly enough to include mental health and well-being, the actual result of the decision was to permit an unrestricted right to abortion throughout the entire 40 weeks of pregnancy. The decision was by a 72 majority. But how could the justice claim that the Constitution guaranteed a woman a right to abortion when the Constitution said nothing at all about abortion? And how could they discover this new meaning specifically in the 14th Amendment to the Constitution when laws restricting or prohibiting abortion had been in existence in 36 states and territories at the very time that the 14th Amendment was adopted? Well, the justice claimed that they discovered this right to abortion contained in a right to privacy that they saw in the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, particularly in the due process provision of that amendment. The due process clause says this, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. Well, where is a right to privacy contained in those words? It's simply not there. The 14th Amendment had been ratified in 1868. Its primary purpose was to guarantee that slaves and their descendants 
but have all the rights of citizenship and equal protection to all other citizens under the law. So where does the 14th Amendment say anything or imply anything about abortion? It does not. The 14th Amendment was never intended to have anything to do with abortion. But by 72 majority in the Supreme Court found that the right to abortion was contained in the 14th Amendment. Do you know that? Because the, and because the Supreme Court said so, it became the law of the land and has remained so since that day. There was nothing anyone in the nation could do about it. Justice William Rehnquist dissented strongly from Roe versus Wade, and this is what he wrote. To reach its result, the court necessarily has had to find within the scope of the 14th Amendment a right that was apparently completely unknown the drafters of that amendment. The Supreme Court thus became the most powerful, gov- powerful group in the nation. As the Supreme Court issued more and more decisions of this nature, decisions not grounded in any law that had been passed by any Congress or any state legislature and that were not part of what the Constitution originally meant, it became an actual functioning the highest governing authority in the nation. The justices discovered that they had the freedom to make up new constitutional doctrines whenever they could get a majority of five persons to do so. And they could always claim to discover the new doctrine in some vague principle of the Constitution or another. Are your eyes being opened to why there has been so much controversy with the appointment of appears to be now three conservative justices to the Supreme Court. But there's another significant difference today from the government that was set up in the Constitution. Now, the most important laws in the land, those, not, those that decide the most fundamental issues facing our society, they're not made by officials who are closest to the people, who are accountable to the people, i.e. the Congress and state and local governments, but are made by a group of justices who have never been elected by the people and have no accountability whatsoever to the people of the nation. This system is the exact opposite of the one designed by our founding fathers. They had decided that laws would be made by the people through their elected representatives, passed by Congress, signed by the president, all of whom were elected by the people. And as the Constitution was written, judges were to have absolutely no role in the process of making laws or in the difficult process of amending the Constitution. They were to judge according to a standard of laws outside themselves, just like the Bible had prescribed. A standard over which they would have no influence at all. But now the system is reversed so that they have the only influence that can ultimately prevail. Are you with me so far? I'll give you another example of what the Supreme Court discovered. New principles in the Constitution. 
With regard to freedom of religion, the First Amendment says the following. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Well, at the time of the First Amendment, this was simply intended to prohibit the establishment of a state church or a certain denomination as the official religion of the national government. Now, the First Amendment was never intended to remove the people's right to religious speech or writing in public places, at government functions, or even on government buildings. But in 1971, in the decision Lemon versus Kurtzman, the Supreme Court decided that a government action <coughs> must not have the primary effect of either advancing or inhibiting religion. This meant that the government could now do nothing that would give support to religious viewpoints or religious beliefs in general. Far from prohibiting the favoring of one particular religion, the Supreme Court decided that government could no longer favor religion at all. And in this and similar decisions, the Supreme Court has thus excluded religious speech from more and more areas of life. And you know what I am talking about. Whether it be public monuments that are being taken down, displays of the Ten Commandments, for example, whether it be prayer at school events, or even a moment of silence for students in public schools. Despite anyone's view of religion, the important point is the process by which they were decided. None of these restrictions had first been passed by state or local representatives who are accountable to the people whom they serve. I mean, the decision about whether an opening prayer should be allowed in a graduation ceremony or a football game, or whether a copy of the Ten Commandments or some other moral quote should be posted in the hallways of a, of a school, should be made by officials of the local school district, who are most accountable to the citizens of that community, as set up by our government and the Constitution. Now, I want you to note this. That at the time of that decision and others, the Supreme Court was called, well, Warren Burger served as Chief Justice of the United States. The Supreme Court was known as the Burger Court from 1969 to 1986. It's generally considered to be a liberal court, meaning the majority of the rulings and justices were liberal. This is disturbing. I'm thankful it turned out this way, but this is just really disturbing. In 2000, the decision, Boy Scouts of America versus Dale. Do you remember this? The Supreme Court came within one vote, folks, one vote of declaring that people have a constitutional right to engage in homosexual conduct, even though the Constitution says absolutely nothing about homosexual conduct. The background of that case is that James Dale was an assistant scoutmaster in the Boy Scouts in New Jersey while he was a student at Rutgers University. He became president of the Lesbian Gay Student Alliance and published an interview in which he stated that he was a homosexual. When officials of the Boy Scouts read the interview, he was dismissed from his position as scoutmaster and expelled from the Boy Scouts. But the New Jersey Supreme Court ruled that the Boy Scouts of America had to readmit him to his position because the Boy Scouts were a public accommodation. 
It could not place restrictions on who can or can't be a leader. A five-member majority of the U.S. Supreme Court overturned the New Jersey Supreme Court decision. And what is troubling about this decision is that if only one justice had voted differently, if only one justice had voted differently, the Supreme Court would have decreed that private organizations like the Boy Scouts cannot decide to exclude someone or refuse to hire someone based on the person's homosexual conduct. Four of the justices thought it was right for the Supreme Court to require the Boy Scouts to hire homosexual scoutmasters who would presumably then go camping with young boys. I wonder if any of those Supreme Court justices had sons or grandsons, and would they be comfortable with a homosexual taking their boys alone camping? Following the pattern of the U.S. Supreme Court, many state Supreme Courts have invented further constitutional rights that they suddenly discover in their state constitutions. So at the state level, the Supreme Courts also became the most powerful body in the state, surpassing the state legislatures and governors. An example, the Iowa Supreme Court ruled in the case Varnum versus Bryan in April 3, 2009, unanimously that same-sex marriages must be allowed in Iowa, and that a state ruling limiting civil marriage to a union between one man and one woman was unconstitutional. In a key passage in that decision, the court said a statute inconsistent with the Iowa Constitution must be declared void, even though it may be supported by strong and deep-seated traditional beliefs and popular opinion. But how was the requirement that marriage be between one man and one woman inconsistent with the Iowa Constitution? There was not a word in the Iowa Constitution about same-sex marriage. The truth is that requiring marriage to be limited to one man and one woman was inconsistent with the Iowa Supreme Court judges' new ideas of what the Iowa Constitution should say. The laws passed by the Iowa legislature did not matter. The strong and deep-seated traditional beliefs and popular opinion of the people of Iowa did not matter. The plain historical meanings of the words in the Iowa Constitution did not matter. The original meaning of the Constitution did not matter. Nothing mattered except what? The new liberal opinions of the judges on the Iowa Supreme Court, who suddenly imposed their new standards on the state by the exercise of raw judicial power. And thereby, an entire state's understanding of marriage was transformed in a single stroke. Again, the Constitution is set up by what? The people elect their officials, they create the laws, and all the Supreme Court has to do is to say if this law fits with the Constitution or not. They do not legislate, they adjudicate. This is not happening. Now you might ask this question, with all this power being usurped by the Supreme Court and taken away from the Congress and the state and local legislative bodies, why didn't the system of checks and balances work to correct the mistake? Well, by checks and balances, I mean, why didn't the president, the executive branch, and Congress, the legislative branch, step in and appoint new justices, i.e. the judicial branch? 
when others died or retired so as to replace these activist judges who were taking so much power to themselves? Well, the answer is this. Many liberal politicians in the other two branches began to realize that the goals they had for remaking the United States could be accomplished simply through the rulings of the courts rather than by taking the hard path of getting the people and the representatives to approve the changes. For example, many liberal politicians were delighted when Roe versus Wade were delighted at the decision of Roe versus Wade and legalize abortion in the United States because this was a much quicker and easier solution than trying to persuade each of the 50 states to overturn its laws restricting or prohibiting abortions. Therefore, rather than acting rather than acting as a check and balance system against the Supreme Court, many in Congress decided that they would support the court's usurpation of power, would support judges at the federal district level and at the appeals court level who would also uphold the judicial system. This is the reason why the current president has already put in 300 new judges. Which is the reason why liberal liberal presidents put in as many liberal judges as they can put in. More liberal presidents appointed justices in the Supreme Court who would promote this judicial activism. So in other words, rather than each of the three branches of government working to protect its own rights, influential members of the legislative and executive branches joined with and supported the Supreme Court in its wrongful usurpation of power. And once that happened, the system of checks and balances was broken. What this meant in the actual events of history is that a number of politicians began to attempt to take over the means of selecting justices for the Supreme Court and other judges for the lower courts. That's why they were so vicious against Justice Kavanaugh. They didn't want a conservative advantage on the Supreme Court. The liberals didn't want that. This is for the purpose of imposing their convictions on the whole nation. And this process came to clear focus. It's been all over the news this past week in the national controversy over President Reagan's nomination of who? Robert Bork as a Supreme Court justice in 1987. At the time, his nomination has been called the most, he was called the most able constitutional scholar in the United States. But many liberal senators, led by late Senator Ted Kennedy of Massachusetts, strongly opposed his nomination. They realized that if Bork's nomination was confirmed, a majority on the Supreme Court would oppose and probably overturn the Roe versus Wade decision regarding abortion. This would mean that the questions about the legality of abortion would return once again to the democratic process and be decided by the laws of the various states. The United States itself has passed by the Congress, i.e. the way the government is supposed to be run and function. Within 45 minutes of Bork's nomination, Ted Kennedy issued a strong condemnation of Bork in a nationally televised speech on the floor of the U.S. Senate. Senator Joe Biden was head of the Senate Judiciary Committee at that time. It was Senator Kennedy who led the opposition to Bork. And in the final vote, Bork's nomination was rejected by a vote of 58 to 42. 
Since the defeat of his nomination in 1987, Bork has been a strong advocate, and this is what we really need to get in this sermon of what's called originalism. Do you know it? Have you ever heard that phrase before? Originalism. It's the idea that the original public meaning of the Constitution should be the guiding principle in interpretation of the Constitution, not the personal views of the justice as to what is necessary or right for the nation. It's the same thing as interpreting the Bible. I don't preach my opinion. That's why I give you plenty of verses. Remember the fence I talked about when I taught you how to interpret the Bible? I take a Bible, I, the verse, look at the words, the grammar, the meaning, and I share the context. This is what it meant, and then we then apply it to today. So there are basic verses that talk about the deity of Jesus Christ, plain throughout the Bible, right? But there are some churches that don't believe him to be God. How do they get there? They can't have even a religion, originalist interpretation or style of interpreting the Bible. They bring their own personal views into it. Well, same thing with Supreme Court justices. Either they're bound by what the text says, or they can make up whatever they want. And we've been living in a time where they've made up whatever they want. Limiting the power of the courts by appointing originalist judges is the most important issue facing the nation today. That's why when you see the name of Amy Coney Barrett, you'll see that she is an originalist. That's why if you see that, now you'll know why. So do you now understand why the Democratic Party so viciously attacked now Justice Brett Kavanaugh at his Supreme Court confirmation hearings? They don't want a conservative majority of justices on the Supreme Court who hold to an originalist view of interpreting the Constitution. And they will undoubtedly attack Amy Coney Barrett, an originalist judge, during her confirmation hearings. It's already started. Many Christians can look at the anti-Christian results in such areas as the ex- of our lives as the exclusion of God from public square, the prevalence of pornography, the erosion of moral standards in many other areas of life, the prohibition against teaching in public schools that God even exists and that he created the world, the unrestricted right to abortion, the increasing rights given to homosexual conduct, and the erosion of many other personal freedoms. These all indicate significant results from the current activist judiciary, the activist Supreme Court, and their liberal courts. These results that I just read to you, they are contrary to biblical principles. So I believe that this is the most important issue facing our nation. For it will decide who will rule a nation. That is why you may have heard that there are some Republicans that would give up the presidency in the Senate, in the House, to have a majority on the Supreme Court. Do you hear that this week at all? Do you understand now why they would do that? It will decide whether we will once again become a nation with a government of the people, by the people, for the people. 
or whether we will forever be ruled by nine unelected, unaccountable lifetime justices on the Supreme Court. And by the way, don't think that the why in the world didn't the Democrats try and replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Because when you have that much power, guess what happens? It corrupts. I'm not saying that she was corrupt, but she was approached in 2013 by the current administration at the time to retire. She was 80 then, and she'd already had two bouts of cancer. And they were concerned that if she died and there was a Republican president, what would happen? The majority on the Supreme Court would go from even liberal to conservative. She wasn't the first one that, that, that shot that down. Sandra Day O'Connor was, was talked about this as well. They have that much power, they don't want to give it up. I'm going to close with a story from Dr. Tony Evans that I think will hopefully drive home the point of what I'm making here and involves football. Two teams in conflict on a Sunday afternoon. They have different goals, different personnel, and they're headed in different directions. Introduced to these two teams in a conflict is a third team, a team of officials. These officials are on the field, but not of the field. They are in the midst of the conflict, but they are not allowed to become part of the conflict because they are obligated to another kingdom at 345 Park Avenue in New York, location of the NFL headquarters. The commissioner of the NFL has sent representatives on the field of play to represent up there in New York to every football field in the NFL. What do we call these people? Referees, umpires. Their job is to bring order to what otherwise would be a chaotic conflict. When these officials step on the field, their personal opinions must now be adjusted. Their desires must be reoriented to a higher authority. They're clearly distinguishable by their black and white jerseys. They do not belong to either of the competing teams because they represent a higher kingdom. Each one of the officials is given a book. This book that rules, that governs the game, it's all a bunch of rules that govern the game, are provided by the NFL offices. All decisions that on the field of play are to be made by and in accordance with that book. Their personal opinions have to be subject to that book. Their background, their histories, their experiences have to be subject to that book. They must make their rules by the book, knowing that sometimes they're going to be booed, sometimes they're going to be cheered, but since popularity is not why they are there, they are there to bring order to a chaotic environment <clears throat> because we have conflicting realities that are clashing moment by moment and play by play. But what do you do when your nation is unraveling? What do you do when the two teams are the Democrats and Republicans? What do you do when the conflict is between the police and the community on issues of justice? What do you do when the issues in a society <coughs> are chaotic and conflicting with different perspectives and worldviews? 
Unfortunately, far too many who name the name of Jesus Christ change books. They go to their political posturing. They go to their individual perspectives. They go to their histories and make their arguments there. And then we wonder why we are not able to bring harmony to a chaotic nation. God does not change books. In the same way that there is an officiating crew who only rules by the book, so it is that God's officiating crew, his church, is going to bring harmony in the church as a model of harmony in the nation. We have to stop changing books. Or we must stop using that part of the book that we like while ignoring the whole counsel of the Word of God. What would you think about a referee who took off his jersey, that black and white striped jersey, and put on a jersey of one of the two other teams that he was officiating? God forbid that, a, that when the Seahawks played the Patriots, that an official put on a Patriots jersey. That'd be okay if in that game they put on a Seahawks jersey, because they don't like the Patriots, but that's a separate issue. That official would be a Benedict Arnold to his designated responsibility, would he not? It is unfortunate today that we have Christians who have put on Republican jerseys, other Christians that have put on Democratic jerseys, and wonder why there is still chaos in the field. They have walked away from a kingdom jersey. And as a result, the failed church has given a great model on how to have a failed culture. This is the application point. Will you vote with your kingdom jersey on? Will your vote be subject to the Bible? I am not here to tell you whether to vote Republican or Democrat or whatever. I am going to give you the information, and you will have to make that decision. Voting is, is important, but it is like any other area of your life. It is to be subject to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Even if it means it's your disadvantage. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. As we close with this song, we desire that your kingdom go forward and that you be glorified. That is kingdom voting. Make us more spirit-filled, biblical kingdom people. 
in all areas of our lives, we pray in Jesus' name.